Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. Um, there have been about 200 and 370 of them now, so if this is new to you, go to the past interviews menu on batgap.com and you'll see all the previous ones archived and categorized in various ways. Today's guests are Thomas Beck and Janet Coley. I'll just read their bios for the sake of those who may not have read them online. Thomas Beck, PhD, has helped people for 25 years to integrate transformational experience, a radical restructuring of the psyche on a higher level of functioning. As a result of his own neurophysiological restructuring, his meditation practice and interactions with an otherworldly being, whom he calls Cosmic Mother, Thomas is now helping people heal from a wide range of physical illnesses. He believes we all have the ability to heal and to spiritually awaken through the unconditional love of the Almighty Spirit. Janet Elizabeth Coley, PhD, is a psychotherapist in the Pacific Northwest, specializing in integrating trauma with spiritual awakening. With expertise in both clinical and transpersonal psychology, she bridges psychology with the extraordinary and the mystical. She presents at the professional conferences of the American Center for the Integration of Spiritually Transformative Experiences, catalyzed by a spiritually transformative experience herself, an STE, during cancer treatment. She now provides psycho-spiritual support for a full range of processes, including for those who have been psychiatrically hospitalized during STEs. She facilitates Spiritual Emergence Seattle, a consultation service integrating psycho-spiritual, physiological, and community support. Janet lives on Whidbey Island and swims with wild dolphins in Hawaii. Um, there are three things, I think, that we're going to be talking about in this interview, um, all of which I find interesting, and hopefully the audience will too. One is, the thing I alluded to, trauma as an impetus to spiritual unfolding. Another is subtle beings, which I've covered and we've covered in, numer in quite a few other interviews and alluded to. And a third is ETs, or extraterrestrials, and the role they may play in an individual or collective spiritual awakening. And that's something we haven't really covered on this show, but something that I've been interested in since about 1980 and have been meaning to cover. And obviously, um, that... Well, on both of those points, the subtle beings and the ETs, I'd say people fall into several categories. There are people who don't believe in them whatsoever. There are people who feel, especially with subtle beings, that they're just sort of an imaginary thing. And ETs also, that they're an imaginary thing, imaginary thing that people have dreamed up. There are people who feel that, okay, they're real, but they have no relevance to true spiritual aspirants. They, we should ignore them and and not get, <laughs> not get hung up in that kind of woo-woo stuff. Mm -hmm. and, and there are those who feel that they are relevant. They're real and relevant. So whatever category you may happen to fall into, we're not going to spend a lot of time. Well, we'll take any questions people send in during the live you know, feed, but we're not going to spend a lot of time with trying to dispel the most obvious and common skeptical questions because we could spend the whole interview doing that. So there'll be a certain presumption of the, you know, the legitimacy of these mm -hmm. things and we'll, we'll kind of explore from there, which is kind of what this show does anyway in a sense. I, I leapfrog a lot of stuff that others would just, you know, 
dwell on at great length, and I just take those things for granted and we move on. So thank you, Thomas and Janet. It's great to be with you. I really enjoyed reading pretty lot of, of all three of your books that you sent. Oh, me. wonderful. Thanks yeah. for having us. Appreciate yeah. it. So um, among these three categories, which thing would you like to talk about first? Good question. Uh, <laughs> is there a well, logical sequence probably, that we can unfold? Yeah, yeah. I, I think there is. I'm just, I'm just loath to begin, that's all. But trauma is the most grounded thing. And so I think before we take off into the nether realms, we might as well begin with something very embodied. Mm-hmm. Trauma. Yeah. And uh, that's pretty much the way we both came in. And, and so in that respect, I think it's really important. It happened. You know, and it's happening. It happens a lot in this collective, in this culture. And it happens to be uh, one of the primary ways that people's, what can I say, egoic consciousness gets um, split open, gets um, uh, dissociated, gets fractured. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it's got to be a primary way that we can um, um, evolve and transcend okay, enter into these uh, higher states of consciousness. Yeah, Uh, I'm sure you'll give us examples, but I do have friends who have gone through fairly traumatic experiences like the the death of a sibling or a serious Mm -hmm. health crisis or something, and it it sort of kick-started them into a, you know, shifted them into a, a different and higher state of consciousness. Yeah, and that's exactly uh, what you know what we work with, um, and uh, I think it can't be overstated. Oh, I've got a wonderful quote uh, from Jeffrey Kripal, professor of religious studies at Rice oh, University. Yeah. Oh, wonderful! Okay, extreme illness, car wreck, and sexual abuse are particularly effective inducers of the mystical. So that about says it all. Um, you know. And so uh, I, I um, generally begin with that. Um, sometimes I tell my own story and how that catapulted me into the work we do today. So, Why don't you do that? So your, um, your own story was cancer. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. And I must say, putting it all together has taken all of my life, Right even though it seems like the first part, it seems like another life. Mm -hmm. It was, uh, I was diagnosed at 30 with cancer, but it came right out of my childhood. My father was bipolar and my mother was fairly fractured, I'll say. And so I had myself a traumatic hospitalization for food poisoning at around three. And so that catapulted me into Western um, medicine. My father was an MD, in fact, as well. And so, so you've got a healthy dose of trying to work with uh, an extreme state, bipolar, and uh, he was trying to manage that himself. And so growing up with that was both wonderful and awful. So when I was hospitalized, then developed, how can I say, It was very difficult for me to absorb food and so my i ended up my growth was stunted and i was uh not very healthy for the first part of my life 
and Western medicine had basically failed me. And so when my father, during an episode uh, later, well, I was um, in my late 20s, uh, was having an episode and was fairly manic. And we decided that he would, for the first time in his life, be hospitalized psychiatrically. I mean, this is a psychiatrist, and doctors don't, in this culture, they make very poor patients, right? So he was hospitalized, and that ended up in a, a tragedy. He, he uh, died in the hospital. And so I, having been helpful in making that decision, then took that on and felt very guilty about it, which led directly to my own cancer. Hmm. So here I am at 30 with cancer, which was treatable with Western medicine, but there was no way I could trust it. So if you consider that my um, ego had been formed very early on out of uh, fear of the medical in that hospitalization early on, um, and here I was expected to do what? Do chemotherapy and radiation. So I'll tuck in there in that story. I also had an eating disorder as a result because I couldn't absorb food and I, and it just did not feel good to eat. So in the process of healing that, now I have a diagnosis of cancer and I'm supposed to do chemotherapy and radiation, which I absolutely could not do. I said, that's going to kill me. Uh, and I refused to do it. So I spent three years trying to initiate a mystical experience uh, and a spontaneous remission. And that, of course, can't work if you're not in a place of surrender, right? And so I had a big no, and it wouldn't it, and so after three years, I was dying. So when I was dying, I had a dream. And the dream was uh, of dolphins. And the dream pretty much saved my life. So the dream initiated my ability, my trust, my faith to move forward and do the, the thing that I absolutely could not do. The thing I was most afraid to do was chemotherapy and radiation. So I was forced pretty much by creation to confront who I thought I was and how my conceptual reality had been put together up to that point. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I did the chemotherapy and radiation. I spiritualized Western medicine. So I had to bring East and West together in my body, transmute what I had firmly believed was poison, right? And I entered into a whole nother level of life. So for me, it was a mystical, a spiritually transformative experience, as they say now, that um, lasted for a number of months, integrated, and then I was basically remade, reformulated. <laughs> and so I knew that the trauma, trauma was a doorway, a transformational doorway. And I wanted to help other people. Oh, I would just okay. add too mm -hmm. that uh, uh, Janet's illness was very curable form of cancer, and she went for a long period of time uh, not undergoing the traditional therapy for it, 
which was uh, scary in its way, you know, because all you have to do is do, you know, do the chemo, which is relatively speaking, uh, not the worst of, the, of, you know, that type of uh, medication treatment. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, I'm in the background watching all of this and thinking, holy smokes, you know, <laughs> let's like move forward with this, please, yeah. you know. But he, you know, was powerless, of course. And, and had I been forced to do it in a, how can I say, a, well, a negative way, I, it never would have, it never would have worked. Yeah. When I said yes to it, it was a transformation. So. Yeah, I had friends who died messing around with natural cures and stuff like that when chemo probably would have saved them, you know. If, That's tough. So sometimes you really have to just do it. And maybe, you know, in some advanced civilization, there will be some Star Trek-like thing where they just zap you with a little light beam and you're all healed. But <laughs> we, we ain't there yet. So, I mean, you know, <laughs> I, I'm just saying this. Sometimes the topic of suicide yeah. comes up and I, I kind of make statements about, you know, because we have a large audience and, and people actually have said that this show has brought them back from that brink. And maybe it'll bring them back from the cancer brink too, just this little comment here. Well, it's every case is individual. But yeah. for me, and this was really hard to explain for a long time, chemo and, and radiation happened to be my transformational door. Yeah. So for somebody else, it can be something entirely different. But that dream of dolphins is actually was the impetus to enable me to trust. And so I really, so I have that connection very deeply inside of me uh, with them. An obvious question would be, you guys are both scientists, have there been any studies showing that large traumatized populations have, have large, the survivors of those situations have large percentages of spiritual awakenings like the Holocaust or Rwanda genocide oh. or different mm. things like that or what's going mm. on now in, in, in Syria, you know, I mean, are we going to see a few years from now if that situation settles down that there's this blossoming of of spiritual awakening to in that traumatized oh, well, population now I, I can say you know two things first of all it's with assistance or with some kind of um support generally that these things can can blossom or or turn that corner into transformation mm -hmm. and that's why we support we want to support people trauma in and of itself mm -hmm. is not enlightening no but with support, I think we all have built into our DNA the, the, um, uh, the transformational process or potential. As Stanislav Grof says, every human being has the potential for mystical experience. Sure. So, so we have that potential, whether or not we can whether or not that becomes manifest then, that's what we're here, you know, that's what we try and Every, every helper tries to do, tries to help with that process. As far as research, I can say that Ken Rain's research, you know, he's the paradigmatic uh, near-death researcher. And he did some really interesting research. I don't know about anything more current, and there should be. But years ago, he did a study called the Omega Project, and one of the things, and he looked at people that had had either a near-death experience or a, some kind of UFO encounter. And that could be a close encounter or just a UFO sighting. And what he found was that there was a statistically, 
relevant increase in the trauma that they had experienced in early childhood. So he did an inventory that uh, included the early childhood um, experiences, and there was, and then he had, of course, control groups. And um, he, when he compared them, there was a higher incidence of trauma. And so what we can say is that it can definitely set you up for experiences that are can be seen as subtle realm or spiritual. It can definitely set you up through the capacity to dissociate. Hmm. Yeah, Leonard Cohen yeah. had some line about the cracks being how the light gets in. Remember yes. that line? <laughs> yes, yes, I've yeah. got that on my website. It's perfect. Yeah. Yeah, forget your perfect offering, right? Is uh, accept the cracks. The cracks are how the light. Oh, see, I can't rhyme it like he did, but that's how the light gets in. Yeah, yeah. I know people who, you know, I would consider highly enlightened who had really nice childhoods, real smooth, and oh yeah, and you know, Adyashanti, for instance, great parents, everything went nicely. Wonderful. Although he, although he did have some major breakdowns in his 20s when not, not mental breakdowns but physical breakdowns where yeah. he, he was stuck in bed for six months and oh. and he was a competitive bicycle racer and he, <laughs> he just wanted to get out and do that but when he tried to do that he would just relapse and be back in bed for months and eventually he got the message and had to had to and and it was like something was trying to shift him into a different mode of life and something was trying to re realign his physiology for a different role than being a professional bicycle racer <laughs> Yeah, perfect. Case in point. Yes, we get remade. We get undone. We become undone. Our, you know, egoic nature gets fractured by any number of things. And and the more we uh, realize that and can, well, the training I did was like, oh, you have a problem? Congratulations. Mm. Congratulations. Because that could just be uh, your the biggest doorway, you know, to enlightenment. Yeah. Thomas, did you want to add anything? Well, you know, my own experience as a, as a child, I, I experienced uh, sexual trauma. And uh, as a teenager, uh, I think directly related to that, uh, I went through a period of about three years where, where I experienced uh, extreme uh, obsessive compulsive disorder. And um, I, in those days, not much was known about it. And there was you know, there were no medications for it, and there really was no quite no understanding of what actually happens in the brain, uh, which now is something that you know researchers understand. But I, more recently in my life, I have used the remnants, let's call it, of the of the OCD as the doorway into some really quite extraordinary experiences. And uh, so, you know, the sort of trauma to, to transformation route uh, has been my path, and uh, I'm I'm still on that path. And you know, maybe maybe at some point here we can talk about the, the whole subject of uh, healing that evolves oftentimes with uh, these transformative experiences, uh, because that's something that's uh, happening quite rapidly now with me, and has for about the last two years. You know, I would like to say about OCD in particular, if you ever, oh, you've had Stanislaw Groff on your program as well. Yes. And when I hear him speak, of course, the thing that fascinates him, seems to fascinate him the most is OCD hmm. and uh, his experiences uh, with people with that during LSD psychotherapy. 
And so that's why it's been such a profound doorway for, for Tom is when you go into these states and then if you're, uh, you know, just the, uh, say the, well, the states of uh, obsession or revulsion, right? If you can, if you focus on that and then because uh, you have a higher order, or Tom at this point, he's a long-term meditator, his uh, brain functioning has expanded, right, uh, beyond that. And so um, so going from that, that uh, place in the brain where that um, experience uh, is um, functions, and they know that because of brain scans now, and then having that expansion take place again and again has been profoundly transformative. And this is something that you would not have believed possible. So I, so anyway, so I've been meaning to write Stan Groff and say, Hey, this is where some of your work has actually led you know, in a very grounded way. And so we're, we're um, living it. I sometimes joke that OCD is my friend because it's made me meditate regularly for 48 years. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, it can, it can work. It can work in, in uh, some positive ways too. Yeah. I remember yes. walking to school when I was a kid and not stepping on the cracks because it was going to break oh. my mother's back. You know, that's oh. <laughs> You see, this has a, has a way of really the, the brain's way of, and then the decompensation or the compensation from that can be enormous. I say, just say Tesla. Tesla had OCD, yeah. as you might know. I just watched so, that documentary about him the other night on the, yeah. on the PBS or whatever. Yeah. Profound. It, it was so, like everything had to be in multiples of three. If he stayed in a hotel room, it had to be divisible by three. And he would walk around a building three times before going into it and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah so. Twelve napkins, you know, looked were embroidered napkins, you know, piles of them, that sort of thing. So yeah, he was pretty deep into his OCD. So it can absolutely. Um, um, so when you work with the brain, when you work with these states, that it can be the uh, uh, we we call it a portal. It can be a portal to expansion. Yeah. That contraction and expansion, which is at the heart of the universe actually happens within our brain when you pass through that transformational door, whether it's cancer, OCD, or sexual trauma. I would like to think mm -hmm. that we have possibly the option, if we believe that we have free will, of um, getting the message without having to be whacked over the head. You know? <laughs> well. in, in other words, we don't necessarily have to go through extreme trauma in order to have a spiritual awakening if we've... Well, you know, Not necessarily. The, yeah, if we've had the inspiration, go for it and consider yourself fortunate that you don't well, have to. Yeah, know. but how else are you going to crack that? I, I, and I mean this, I mean this lightly because it's not in our business to go around cracking the ego structure. Yeah. But that is essentially what needs to be done. That is the crack that lets the light in. And so that egoic structure, whether it's through long-term meditation, the help of a guru, right? or otherworldly beings, something has to be, something has to, uh, there has to be some intrusion. So, yeah. yeah I, I remember I um, 
a friend, you, you know John Gray, the Mars Venus guy, he, he's, oh, an old, yeah. he's an old friend yes. of mine, and he used to be Maharishi Mahesh Yogi's personal secretary, and I remember when he, okay. when he was ready to stop doing that, and, and had, Maharishi was trying to choose a new one, um, John recommended a friend of his, and, and Maharishi said, oh, he said, I'd have to crack through that hard shell. He wanted somebody whose shell was already cracked or thin or something. He didn't want to have to do the work on this guy. So, yeah. I mean, we can thin our own shell, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, thin, yes. The, the crab is actually the sign for cancer, <laughs> right? That my shell, as my, uh, one of my first teachers, Richard Moss, said, you know, he said, I was a tough nut to crack. Yeah. And I was. <laughs> I had to come very close to death. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess the point I'm trying to make here is that the more we can take the initiative ourselves to thin our shell, yes. the, the less God or nature or whatever is going to have to clobber us to, to play, yeah. you know, perhaps, yeah. hopefully. Years ago, 20, 25 years ago, I, I was a really uh, a beginner. You know, I had beginner's mind, as they call it, about meditation. Mm -hmm. And then through some people that we met, we, we hung out with some what we considered very enlightened people at the time. And uh, I began meditating and I really, really liked it. So I would get up at 3 a.m. and meditate for three hours day after day after day. And I could feel my nervous system shifting mm -hmm. like from week to week. And it, it, it actually became too much at one point that I had to back off. But in the long term, this led to like in the last 10 years, that I write about in my book, a number of very expansive, incredible experiences that just happened spontaneously. Uh, and I began to think after a while, gee, is there some way that I can actually facilitate these things happening? Sure. And that led me to uh, find a, a, a woman here on, on the island north of Seattle uh, who's a Jungian psychotherapist. Uh, uh, I didn't know it at the time, but we have a much deeper connection than, than I ever imagined. But uh, at one point, I, I said, uh, you know, I need to like bite the bullet and and look at uh, the trauma that I experienced as a kid much more deeply. And I'm ready to do that now. And I did. And as a result, uh, for a period of about 18 months, every single time that we met, I would have a very expansive, incredibly intense experience that lasted for 60 to 90 minutes um, and eventually um, the, uh, the energetics of those uh, sessions uh, focus more and more on my arms and hands as opposed to a whole body experience. And then, you know, probably in the last year and a half or so, uh, I, I, I became aware that I can uh, actually uh, help people to uh, reduce their symptoms from some, from some pretty serious illnesses. Um, and so that sort of brings us up to, to the moment, but, you know, my, uh, I meditate six to 10 hours a week right now, and that seems to be, for me, I mean, because I've done so much meditation, it seems like, eh, yeah, it's easy, it's nothing. You know, I, I get that. And, I, you know, trust me, I have clients who have never meditated in their lives, and they're in the 40s and 50s, and they start out with five minutes a day, and I'm going, fantastic, go for it. You know, do it, do it, do it. And, uh, and it, it changes them. Those who cho choose to do the meditation, it changes them, like, really quickly. Oh, yeah. Right? Okay, so we're, we're talking about trauma as an impetus to awakening. And Janet gave her example about cancer. You, you gave an example about OCD. Um, any examples among your clients that you want to bring up? So the one that comes up right away is um, 
um, a man in his early 50s who, uh, as a child, experienced uh, some of the most uh, severe sexual trauma that I've ever been aware of in my career. Mm. Uh, and uh, as a result, it's, as you might well guess, it's very, very difficult for him to look at what happened to him because he goes right back into that state and he dissociates, like extremely dissociated. And so he made a decision that he wanted to confront his trauma head on. I said, okay, I'm with you. And uh, so he began to talk about some things that had happened to him and only in a very general sense. And I could sit there and watch him. This is actually uh, within the last month. And uh, I could watch him dissociate and he actually became nauseous, uh, could barely hear my voice and he's sitting, you know, four feet across from me, uh, sort of doubled over and, you know, I go through the, the normal routine is to sort of, you know, have him pat the back of his hands and pat his legs to bring him back, you know, and it began to help a little bit and I got his awareness after about 10 minutes. Um, and then at some point he sat and he was quiet and I could, I could watch this shift happen. Internally, I don't know exactly what was going on, but he made a, he made a fundamental shift from being uh, extremely distressed by even you know, you know, touching the surface of his trauma to going clear to the other end of the continuum in, in a matter of about 10 to 15 minutes. And he sort of, I call it the Buddha smile came over his face and he sat back relaxed and he went into an actual state of complete bliss. And I said, how you doing? Let's call him Ralph, okay, whatever, make up a name. How you doing, Ralph? And he just smiled and looked at me I said, just hang with that, you know, for the next half hour, which he did. Um, and then he said, okay, it's time to go. I'm good. So I made sure he was grounded, you know, and could drive and all that. But he told me uh, the following week that uh, he had he had experienced that for the, the rest of the entire day. And it was the most expansive, one of the most beautiful experiences of his entire life. So that's a trajectory that he's on right now. So it's very similar uh, to the kinds of things that I have experienced myself. Hmm. Would you um, concur that trauma and all mental states, for that matter, um, have a physiological correlate that you oh, know, yes. every thought we yeah. think, every emotion we feel, everything has some kind of neurophysiological co counterpart or correlate. And yes. if, there's a lot, if there's been a lot of trauma and it has residual effects on it, if it's, if it's stored, it must be stored physiologically as well as mentally. And really overcoming it necessitates and involves a physiological transformation as much as a mental one. Yes. I think you kind of yes. alluded to that earlier, but maybe we can go into that a little bit. Well, you know, when, uh, when a child is traumatized, no matter what the trauma is, the, the nature of it, we have to shut down emotionally oftentimes to survive what's going on around us, what's being done to us. Uh, so certain brain structures are altered during that process. And as a form of compensation, you know, our brains are incredibly neuroplastic, which means that one part of the brain can take over the functions of another part to of the compensate. brain. To compensate. To compensate. And so I think those parts, uh, and this has been shown to happen with uh, people who uh, begin to do mindfulness meditation and within a space of about eight weeks, yes. uh, uh, fMRI studies show that there are actual physical structural changes in their brain and functional changes in their brain. 
So, you know, uh, part, uh, one part of the brain shuts down, another part of the brain opens up as a form of compensation. This is what I believe allows a lot of people who've been severely traumatized to become much more intuitive and uh, makes it easier for them in a way to open up to these other states of consciousness and, and to the beings that inhabit these other realms. Okay, yeah, so now if we move to the next level with that, I'll just say there's a way, the, the way I look at this in myself and in uh, other individuals, if you come in to a setting, you know, a childhood setting where there's going to be abuse and trauma, I also have to look at this in terms of the soul. And, well, when we met, say, Joy Gilbert, who I hope we'll mention later, and learned that her father had been very violent and uh, abusive and saw the way it, it had affected her, I knew we were on the right track, right? That my upbringing had not been some vast accident and tragedy, but that, and and this is borne out with research as well, is that this, such settings teach a person how to either A, leave their bodies, leave their bodies entirely as in an out-of-body experience, or you become vast associators. But what happens with that it doesn't necessarily cause just pathology at all. It's teaching you, training you how to focus your awareness into other realms and realities that are going to affect us spiritually. Okay, yeah. so that dissociative quality that joy certainly, certainly you know, was engaged in, right? You learn how to dissociate. And so she she went, she ended up doing something very functional with it. She went to the East, was with the Maharishi, and she learned how to meditate. It was the early spiritual training of her life. So when you look at it, when you, when you give a long-term view of that, it's like it's hard... You know, you don't want to bring that in too early when somebody's coming in with, uh, say, trauma, sexual trauma or anything like that, and say, well, this is part of your karma or part of your soul's journey. But I, you know, having been through that myself, I I can't ignore the bigger picture as well as what it does to us um, in terms of our psychology and our physiology. Yeah, I'm sure there's a bigger picture. Some say we sign up for for what we end up getting. You know, we choose our parents. I read an article a couple of weeks ago about a guy who hit his head on the bottom of a swimming pool and got a severe concussion, and mm-hmm. shortly thereafter um, began to play beautiful classical music, composing it on the fly. And he could sit there for hours composing this stuff, and he's played with orchestras and everything now. Thomas's comment about other parts of the brain opening up to compensate for those that are being shut down reminded me of that. And then there was that lady who, whose name is eluding me at the moment who wrote Stroke of Genius, I think it was called mm-hmm. in, what's her yes. name, three-part name. <laughs> yes. And that article also mentioned a little kid that got hit in the head with a baseball and, and thereafter he was able to solve complicated mathematical equations just in his head. But one would like to think that 
you know, you don't have to actually damage the brain no. in order to open up its full potential. That no. you can somehow bypass that, ideally, and um, open it up without being traumatized or, or limited in any sense. Right, and, and, and this is um, what I wrote about in my book, uh, the being that I encountered when I was four years old that I call Angie in my book, but actually her name is Cosmic Mother. What I understand now is that there, there are beings that are very corporeal, they're very real, like we're real, I, I call them people, and that they have the capacity to uh, download enormous amounts of knowledge, energetics into the human body that it can take months or days or years to integrate. And so uh, it isn't necessarily a traumatic experience, you know, that can lead to, uh, lead to uh, different kinds of awakening process in, in a human. Oh, but it's going to be an intrusion of some nature. That's the common, that's the common denominator. An intrusion, it seems like an intrusion to our, you know, uh, egoic, egoic self, right? Of some nature, that's what I would say. Yeah. It might depend on how, how in, intact and defensive the ego is. You know, if one fully trusts in what's going on, one might not feel it as an intrusion, but as a gift. I mean, I, I've spoken to people who, yeah. do, who do speak of mm -hmm. downloads. They, they feel like mm -hmm. a whole package of knowledge is mm -hmm. downloaded, and they don't feel like they're being invaded or violated. They, right. they feel like they're being blessed. Right, right. So you have, that's, the, that's the trick, is that's the key, is, is our perception of it. it the perception uh, initially may be one uh, where we're, I mean, you just look at the, what's happening in the collective now, right? Um, and how can you um, see that for the uh, gift that it is, right? And you know, that's congratulations, you have a problem, you know, or congratulations, this is, this has entered your life. That's kind of the attitude one, one uh, ideally would want. There's a quote I wrote down from you about, um, you said, the current paradigm on our planet is one of polarization and isolation, a deep fear-based mass unconsciousness has seized control and will not stop until everything it touches is destroyed. I felt this very strongly most of my life, and the sense that there is something out of balance in the world at large has guided many others and myself to the realm of spirit. You, you kind of wonder whether the darkness that may seem unsurmountable and hopeless is actually a trauma that is eliciting or, or triggering, catalyzing a worldwide awakening. Part of the plan, that's it, is yeah. part of the plan. That's an incredible way to see it. You know, I, I just presented at ASSIST, mm -hmm. and I wanted to talk about someone's uh, bipolar episode and uh, the, um, uh, what could be viewed by Western medicine as psychosis. But what he got was this expansion and contraction that is at the heart of the universe. It's like breathing. Cycles. So, right. So we are, you know, we can see this, this polarity. So the polarity gets bigger. It's very union. But, but out of that, the third transcendent state of consciousness or the third transcendent position will come. So 
So yeah, so if we're in this contraction now, it's just part of the plan. There's a verse in the Bhagavad Gita where Lord Krishna says, when dharma is in decay and a dharma flourishes, I take birth age after age. So it's it's kind of like Crosby, Stills and Nash, that we know the darkest hour is always before the dawn, although they didn't <laughs> coin that phrase. It kind of, if, if we think of, of a pendulum swing, it, it kind of has to swing all the way in one direction before it can start swinging in the other. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. So, um, uh, one of the things that uh, comes up for me is, in uh, it, it's related to all this, and uh, it's the, the idea of how, how that change occurs, how it occurs physically in a person, and the sort of why it happens. And the underlying why of it brings us into what they call chaos theory in mathematics. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a mathematician, but I know it, but from reading about it, is that when you feed a certain kind of energy into any natural system, which can be the mm-hmm. local weather pattern, it can be our individual consciousness or collective mm-hmm. consciousness, you keep feeding energy in over and over and over and over. And at some point, what they call the underlying attractor, the underlying form of the system will go through an abrupt shift, mm. right? And this is manifest in people. If you read like the book uh, Cosmic Consciousness was the first book that I ever read about. By Buck. Oh, eight, right? Buck, right? Yes. What was it, 1899 or 1900 or something was written. And it's like people meditate and they meditate and they meditate for years and years. And then one day, all of a sudden, for no apparent reason, whoosh, something happens and this huge energy comes through the body. It can, it doesn't always, but it can happen this way. And, you know, you see the world suddenly in a very different way. Yeah. And so I, I have a really intense interest right now in understanding exactly what that mechanism is. I mean, biologically, what happens, like with the client that I mentioned a little while ago, or, or my own experience, you know, how, how does it actually happen? What's the moment that goes up? What's, what is it physiologically and emotionally, all these components? If we understood this really well, it would be something that could be applied to a lot of people collectively. A very different sort of planet. Yeah. There's a phrase in or a term in physics called phase transition, and it's, a very, yes. it's actually a very common phenomenon. When you boil water, nothing much seems to be happening, in, you know, at, even at 211 degrees Fahrenheit, but at 212, boom, it starts to boil. And there are many, many other examples in physics like that so it could be that we're a lot closer to a a significant shift in the world Mm -hmm. than it would seem yeah the uh, word species shift comes to mind and that was exactly what the beings told marcy clevens she's haley in my book sacred encounters Uh, so that's the first part of the book and they basically told her we're undergoing a, a species shift. Yeah. And, I, and Thomas alluded to individual shifts too. Those also can yes. can seem like they, you know, that nothing much is happening. It might be years off, and all of a sudden, pop, there's a shift. And I'm sure there's a physiological component of that if we looked at what's going on with the chakras and the, all that mm-hmm. stuff. Right. Right. So, so what's happening individually? If individuals. Um, are experiencing this, then it this is this is their this is their wording. It will move like a wave through the species, so that the individuals that are experiencing this transformational shift 
such as ourselves, such as you, that we then, everybody, everybody else participates in that, yeah. right, by virtue of our connection. I think um, pe people, most people have heard the hundredth monkey story, and I think that may have been discredited, I don't know, but um, similar principle. Yes, right, right, right. And so, okay, I think we're edging, we're edging towards the beings, talking about the beings. Yeah, let's um, talk about that, because we've alluded to it a number of times. So what are we talking yeah. about when we talk about subtle beings and their relevance to the whole individual and collective awakening? Subtle beings, um, there are subtle and not so subtle beings. Um, <laughs> I, that's a good way I, to put it. Yeah. A few of them are running for president these days. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a, yeah. <laughs> One of them uh, in particular. <laughs> well, well my, in my case, for example, when I, I, I knew all of my life that something profound had happened to me when I was four years old, and I couldn't quite pin it. I didn't know what it was. I knew that it was some sort of a, let's call it an intervention from outside of the normal state of affairs. Uh, and I had dreams about it then, you know, over the years. Hypnotherapy, one, one or two sessions. A couple had... of hypnotherapy sessions, which uh, brought some imagery up. And then eventually I worked with a, a woman, a friend of ours, who uh, uh, she's sort of a natural remote perceiver, if you will. And she was able to uh, tap into the, the time frame uh, during which this happened and the emotional experience that my sister had had at the time. And she mimicked, mimicked that. And when I saw her mimic it, it, it sent me actually into an altered state. It was sheer trauma. It was sheer trauma. It was sheer terror. Yeah. It was terror. My sister, not yes, myself. Yes, right. Right. And then at that moment, I began to recover some of the actual memories of what had happened. Because in, in psychological terms, a memory is composed of the content of what happened and the emotional state that you're in at the time. So they're tightly bound together. So I was able to access the feeling state spontaneously and the memories began to come forth. Not merely, uh, how can I say this? The memories are re-experienced. So it isn't just a mental process, but Tom was in the state itself. He was re-experiencing them. And it was very physiological, very, very intense, very, not, not just thoughts, in other words. Yes, and so that's kind of, uh, when these uh, memories are so deeply dissociated, and then you also have the age involved, very early childhood, um, so they are discreetly held in a state-dependent memory. So you literally have to be in that state of consciousness in order to uh, recover them fully. So he went into the re-experiencing of his contact, of his uh, contact with this otherworldly being. Hmm. And what had been, what we had merely surmised for all of our lives, uh, then became manifest. So Thomas, what was that experience exactly with the subtle being? Yeah. Um, and why was it so impactful? I was, uh, so the setting is uh, central Ohio, a small house that we lived in, me and my family. And uh, my, the memories that came through 
were this compelling sort of sense of overwhelming love, like, like unconditional love that was pulling me, pulling on me like really, really hard. And uh, I, I had the memory of actually being moved through the air uh, over a period of moments uh, up toward this, what I, I just consider her a light being, uh, that's one way to describe her, uh, a, a female being who is making a very powerful uh, contact with my subconscious mind and my conscious mind. Eventually, I, I ended up in her presence. One, one of the early memories that came back was uh, looking at our house. There were three houses, one, two, three, and ours was the center house. And I remember brilliant, brilliant white light in the sky and eventually moving, being moved toward that white light. And eventually I was uh, in the presence of this being. Oh, the trees. You, is that where you tried oh, yeah. to grab the right. trees as you went by? I was four-year-old trying to ground myself, so I grabbed, we had this huge mulberry tree in the backyard, and I was like trying to grab that to ground myself. And at some point, all of a sudden, uh, I felt this um, e enormous wave go through my body, and it's just like, ah, oh, I can let go. I don't have to struggle. I can just go with this energy. And I found myself uh, shortly thereafter in, in the presence of this diminutive little being, very definitely a female being, probably four feet tall or smaller, and pretty much in a state of confusion because I'm a four-year-old and I'm just trying to form my ego and I'm trying to figure out how the world works. And all of a sudden, it's like everything I know up to that moment goes out the window like quickly. Uh, what I did remember, and this came through uh, actually much later, years later, uh, um, I first remembered sort of uh, lying on a table and sort of propping myself up on one arm and looking in the eyes, into the eyes of this being. And at that point, everything went sort of black. <laughs> but what I understand now, what I really understand is that uh, I, I, it was sort of like a mind merge with this being and that she was downloading a, a massive amount of knowledge and energetics into me physically. Energy, yeah. And uh, I was just overwhelmed. And I came to understand later that it wasn't her, was not her first choice to do that at that moment because I was too young. But she felt an imperative to do so because of where the species is right now and because this whole thing was set up long before I was born. I, I found out only a few years ago that uh, my mother as a child had had an experience and she didn't know how to recognize it, but that, that's unfolded too. And there are actually some uh, what you call MIB experiences that have happened in our family uh, over the years. Men in black. Men in black. Mm -hmm. The real men mm -hmm. in black. Um, so this being um, uh, drew me toward her. Uh, I was... I was uh, blessed to be able to experience unconditional love on a level that I couldn't have imagined. That has been the primary uh, nature of my experience with this being, is that uh, she exudes unconditional love. I mean, some people talk about negative experiences with beings, and I haven't had that kind of experience. Mine's been very, very positive. And then uh, she sort of went away for many, many years until about five or six years ago when I started consciously in my meditations asking for her to return into my life. 
one day uh, I, I felt this very overwhelming presence that, that lasted for a whole day and then into my meditation at night. And I, I, I asked, you know, Cosmic Mother, what's happening here? And what I got was, I'm not for you right now, but somebody else is. And there is a male figure now that, well, I don't know. I don't know what his actual name is, but I call him Henry. We call him Henry. And Henry is a being that I, I feel his presence all the time. And then in the last couple of years, Cosmic Mother has come back into my life, and I have been aware of her presence many times, uh, especially when I've been in these very intense states. She's actually helped initiate these intense yes. states in what I was talking about earlier in a, a therapeutic setting, actually. So I'm, I'm aware that she's around and that I'm in, the, in a, a very intensive phase of my awakening right now, which includes the healing process that I described earlier. Wasn't Henry the name of Jimmy Stewart's rabbit in that movie? Where no, that was Harvey. Harvey, was, I knew it was with an H. That topic comes up. <laughs> no. But Henry's actually, he's very personable, uh, although he says, I am not a soothsayer if I ask too many questions. But he's been known to give us information, very grounded information, such as should we check our baggage or or... <laughs> <laughs> you know, at the airport, yeah. well, you know, if I have a, sometimes I'll ask him a question about uh, a client, you know, or, yeah. or, or for guidance. He's also informed me that my mother, who, as I mentioned, was very fractured. She, and so she's been through her own healing process. And, and now she, um, Henry was able to inform me and I picked up that she's back. She, she is, uh, doing very well now. She has gone through her own healing process. So anyway, Henry, I just want to say Henry's uh, been very helpful and and as the emissary or go-between between Tom and Cosmic Mother. You know, the universe is efficient. And so, yeah. Mm -hmm. I just want to ask you some questions that will help fill in the blanks for some people who might think this is getting a little wacky. Well, first of all, Thomas, with the Cosmic Mother experience where you're four years old and you're grasping at the tree and next thing you knew you're, you're on a table, that kind of sounds like alien abduction where your physical body mm -hmm. went up. Yeah. You, was it your physical body or is that an OBE, was, do you yeah. think? It was my yeah. physical body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and okay. I, I, I tend to shy away from certain terminology anymore, but yeah, it was a, uh, it was a, a definitely an encounter experience with an otherworldly being. Who and, had a craft of some kind that had a table in it that you could craft, lie on? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. And uh, you know, I, I don't. I, I'd like to just mention uh, one thing relative to this, and that is, you know, people think about or you're talking about subtle beings and so forth, and not so subtle beings. And uh, I made it a point to mention someplace in this discussion that. Um, a couple of years ago, NASA released a, uh, a report that they estimate that there are some 20 billion Earth-type planets in our Milky Way galaxy alone, uh, based on uh, Kepler telescope studies, right. and that within the, the the known universe, that there are uh, you know some quintillion or so, possibly Earth-type planets. Sure. So given it's all now that, two trillion huh? galaxies instead of a couple hundred billion in the known universe. That just came out a couple of weeks ago. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So you multiply two trillion by what? A couple hundred? Tw what? What do you say? Twenty billion or something? And yeah, some gigantic. You, you get a big number. 
10 to the 15th or 10 to the 18th, some huge, huge number. It's like, gosh, folks, you know, we're not alone in the universe. We are not alone. So the idea that, oh, there are actual physical beings visiting our planet. Or, okay, let me make the point here, physical or non-physical. I mean, we we are in right now what we think of as a physical material reality, Mm -hmm. but is that the only dimensional reality? Of course not. And so I I don't get really hung up with, you know, I, I look at it as phase transitions, uh, whether or not they manifest materially uh, in our material reality or not. They may and they may not. Some things happen out of body and some things happen very materially. But you have to become, um, how can I say, fluent. You just become more fluent. These are just like, Think of it as the the water turning into ice that we happen to have the ability to pass through material objects at times facilitated by these beings that they themselves are not bound by our temporal and linear well they have they have technologies they yeah, have, you know they, they have uh, uh, Spirit. We call science. them spiritual technologies. Right. Spiritual and scientific technologies yeah. that are far, far advanced beyond what humans are. Sure. Human. I think a good, a good principle to bring in, and you, well, here's a quote from your book, Thomas, The End of Homo Sapiens and the Birth of a New Species. You say, a vast consciousness organizes the universe, subsuming everything. It is the glue that holds the universe together, everywhere and nowhere. And... Um, I, th- I think science helps us realize this because if you look at anything closely, you see that vast intelligence at work. Look at a single atom. Look at look at a grain of sand and, and the trillions of atoms that are in that. Look at you know a, a cubic centimeter of empty space somewhere mm-hmm. way out between two galaxies. Even it contains you know gamma rays and photons and so on passing through that ha- that are perfectly orchestrated by a, a, an intelligence a level or degree of intelligence we can barely comprehend. So the whole thing, to me, is one big mass of intelligence, which we could call God if we want. And go ahead and riff well, off of that. Well, yeah. one, of the, one of the things that, that came through in several of my sessions over the last couple of years, so uh, imagine uh, being in a, a very extreme, expanded, but yet very super-connected state of consciousness, the other end of the continuum from the dissociated state of consciousness. And what came to me was, uh, I guess you could call them principles, which to me make perfect sense, that space is not just big, like really, really big, like they say in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, it's infinite, it's actually infinite. The other point is time is infinite. There, there was no beginning and there is no end, you know, and that sort of like flies in the face of Big Bang Theory, which is the whole discussion. I don't want to go into it necessarily. Uh, the third is that consciousness also is infinite. So you have these three concepts, and it's, I think, uh, virtually impossible to really understand these concepts in our normal waking state of consciousness that to be in an expansive state, you get it as a direct experience of that reality. So, you know, I, I feel that I, I have had that experience a number of times. And uh, when I'm in my normal, you know, beta state talking to you, it's like, yeah, these are really fascinating ideas. But it's that's different than actually being uh, in that state where you get it directly. 
Sure. Or, or being in the presence of what one of these beings, you know, to say that mm-hmm. that's a, that for us has been uh, a extreme or altered state, right? And so we're trying to normalize it more by talking about it. And apparently it's time to talk about it in our culture or we wouldn't be sitting here. But uh, these are uh, experiences that people have had and that we have had much uh, skepticism and ridicule and it's it's very important to provide a place as you're doing so that we can talk about this in a as grounded a way as we can okay a few years ago i organized a panel discussion um with some friends who all have subtle perception um including harry alto kristen kirk francis bennett it's on you can find it on batgap and uh i don't want to name names but among these people you know, this kind of perception is routine. And one of them, for instance, said that, you know, he constantly, routinely, as you and I experience birds and trees, experiences all the subtle realms of creation and all the beings who, who reside therein. Mm. And, uh, and that, you know, you mentioned something about being in the presence of one of these beings. Well, we always are. <laughs> they're, they're, right. they're always there. Right. And, they're uh, good point. Yeah. Yes, if we just are not conscious of it fully. Yeah. Or, or some of us are some of the time, right? And so it's getting more acclimated to that uh, and being able to listen to others, you know, without automatically um, having to withdraw. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's, I think it's really important at us at this juncture in our evolution the evolution of our species to be able to to be able to grok it. <laughs> yeah, here's a point from your book, uh, Sacred Encounters. You say that the subtle is fundamental to and gives rise to the gross. Gross material reality is said by mystics and visionaries alike to arise out of this subtle realm. I think that's important to understand in this context. And physics helps corroborate it in terms of maybe it's not a one-to-one correlation, but in terms of the the fact that the the deeper you go in terms of physical reality, the less material things become to the point where materiality can't be found whatsoever. So if, if one has that in mind, that we could think of it as an ocean where the gross level is like the surface and then there's deeper levels and there's all these fish down there that you don't see if you just look at the surface. That's right. Uh, it's a good, perhaps a good metaphor. And another thing, the reason we don't see it ordinarily is that the gross perception overshadows the subtle. The senses become yes. habituated to cr- a relatively crude level of functioning and lose the ability or, or never even gain the ability to pick up on, on these more refined, subtle values. But eventually, in the course of spiritual evolution, they do. And that's one of the things I think why I like to talk about this topic sometimes is that it's definitely part of the journey and people might as well get used to the idea that, that, it, that you know this whole you know, vertical dimension of subtle realms is part of the the overall topography of of the universe. Yeah, that's that's very well put. Very well yes, said. And, and that's why um, meditation has been such an important part of my life because I uh, I learned early on that basically the more you meditate, if you're doing it right, the more open you become. And I got to the point where my 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 sensory input 
uh, was pretty overwhelming because I had been doing such a great deal of meditation. So I had to back off for a while. But my uh, nervous system has adjusted to that now. So uh, you have to integrate. Yeah. 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 Uh, So um, can I say it's so his weekly sessions uh, with the union, I believe the union therapist were the that was the container Mm -hmm. through which this uh, being could enter and enhance or. Yeah, enhance is a good way to put it. Enhance his nervous system by being in the presence of that higher energetic. And so every week it would be, you know, like literally darshan or. Uh-huh. That's a, mm-hmm. a good way to describe yeah. it. Yeah. So. So, Thomas, your book is entitled The End of Homo Sapiens and the Birth of a New Species. Do you feel uh, that that is literally true and that a new species will. Um, evolve relatively, I don't know how long it'll take, that'll be as different from us as we are from monkeys, for instance? Uh, I think so. I think we, we may or may not, you know, end up having the, the same form that we do right now. I mean, um, but but it is, a, it is a phase transition that I believe is already well underway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's like popcorn, you know. <laughs> One person becomes awakened and another and then reaches some critical mass and then boom, a lot of people, I don't know about everybody, but a lot of people, it doesn't take everybody. You know, it's one of these situations where uh, I liken it to, um, like if, you're, if you have a chemical compound and you put what's called a dopant in it, which is another, uh, like, like one atom of another material in it, sometimes you put in like one atom in 10,000 and it completely changes the, the characteristics of the, the solution that, that you created. So maybe it only takes like one, you know, one person in every 10,000 or every million to become fully awakened in order to affect the collective. Yeah. And, Here's and a couple take- of examples. I mean, 1% of the cells in the heart are called pacemaker cells, and they regulate uh-huh. the beating of the entire mm-hmm. heart. Um, mm-hmm. The square root of 1% of the photons in a beam of light, if they become coherent with one yes. another creates a phase transition in which the entire thing becomes a laser. And there are other examples in magnetism and other, other examples from science. But Margie used to be really big on that point. You, you probably are aware of that. Yes, Getting yes. the square root of 1% of the world's population to meditate and so on yeah. in groups. Yeah, and, and our function right now happens to be to elucidate the role that these other otherworldly beings, we call them, are playing in this. So we are not alone. We are certainly connected with them energetically, genetically, and uh, there is a vast, I would call, intervention happening mm-hmm. uh, for those people that are having similar experiences. And I have to believe that there are going to be some in your audience we are here to uh, normalize it and to validate it, authenticate it, just as Joy Gilbert did for us, uh, say, 15 years, 20, almost 20 years, 20 years ago, ago. Yeah. 20 years ago. And yeah. we'll, we'll talk more about her. Um, okay. So if we were to draw a Venn diagram, which is mm-hmm. like people have probably seen those, it's like overlapping circles. And in mm-hmm. one circle, you know, you have certain thing. It's the A, the A circle, another, you have the B circle, and then and where they overlap, it's like A and B together. Could we say that, um, you know, there's the whole 
alien thing, extraterrestrials. <laughs> there's the whole subtle being thing. And then there's some kind of overlap. Um, mm -hmm. In other words, there may be subtle beings who, who live among us uh, <laughs> routinely and normally as, uh, you know, inhabit the, the subtler realms in our everyday world. And then there are others, then there are extraterrestrials who come from who knows where. And, and, and yet there, there's, where? A, there's an overlap in terms of these extraterrestrials seem to have mastered travel not only in, over distance but over dimensions and yes. can, can function. Yeah at subtler realms as well as travel vast distances. Yeah, uh, we're in, we're, human beings are in the playpen right now, you know, in terms of like these technologies. But you have to consider, uh, given that another species would have the ability to travel vast distances, even interstellar, let alone intergalactic distances, well, they have to have the, they have to have the technology to first communicate across those distances in a relatively short period of time because if you travel, say, even at the speed of light, which is enormous, and you shine a flashlight at one end of our galaxy, it takes, what, 50,000 years for the beam to hit the other side, right? From our so perspective. We yeah, we can't, we, can't, uh, we can't sit around waiting. Yeah. From the perspective of the photon, the trip is instantaneous. Exactly. Right. Right. But then also, you know, uh, you want to travel from here to, say, the nearest star, Alpha Centauri. It's four and something light years. light years away, right? Well, okay, we can get in our, uh, you know... Uh, thruster rocket and we'll be there in 50,000 years or something, well, that won't cut it, you know. Yeah. Um, so there has to be some level of technology that goes far beyond what, what yes. we're utilizing right now. Mm. And, you know, these, these are the material technologies, but there's also what Janet alluded to a, a little while ago was the uh, technologies of the spirit, which we, I think, as human beings, uh, are in the process of really learning for the first time, perhaps. Uh, you know, it's like what what comes out of a great deal of meditation, uh, the, the very things that, you know, you talk about a lot on your program. You know, these these are re remarkable technologies that, that uh, cumulatively will become or are becoming the phase shift that we, we're talking about. And, you know, we happen to think it's encoded in our DNA. I have absolutely no proof of that, but... But there is that, that again, is one thing that the beings have, have said. And they said that directly to Joy, Joy Gilbert. They said, your DNA uh, is coded to awaken at this time. And awaken she did. So, you know, when she told us 20 years ago, we'd be undergoing something similar. Uh, you know, who, who would have thunk, right? That, but now... I, what I see is what I what I see is that Tom is going through in slow motion, and that's that too is is very important because you know I as the more analytical one of the two I can document I can write I can describe the the experience uh, so to make it more uh, to normalize it for others see. And so he's going through in slow motion what Joy went through, oh, how many years ago uh, at this point, you know, when a being touched her on the forehead and she went into unity. So here Tom is, as his nervous system is entrained week after week after week. Well, my, my resident state of consciousness is going through regular periodic upgrades. Uh, and no. I don't know. What, I don't know what the end point is, frankly. I don't think there is one person. Maybe right. there isn't. Maybe there isn't. 
but it's it's very interesting to be going through the process, and it, it's it's quite exciting. You know, it's a it's phenomenal to uh, to have these physical sensations in my body, and and also you know the expansion of my awareness of what's around me in in a very different way than our normal you know sort of state of mind. Uh, many of these things have happened uh, like when I'm driving on the freeway for no apparent reason, you know, or when I'm uh, we we take a, a ferry back and forth between. Uh, you know, uh, the mainland and the island uh, a couple times a week. And uh, I've had it happen when I'm on the ferry. <laughs> like, why now? I don't know right. why now. But Not doing anything else. Might as well. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's seven, 7 billion people or so on the planet. I don't know. Wow. I, I wonder how many of these people have been actually influenced oh. by extraterrestrials oh. directly. That sounds oh. like a, this is bringing up an exciting point, so I don't think I have to finish the question. You just oh. go for it. How <laughs> exciting is this? Well, I just spoke at the American Center for the Integration of Spiritually Transformative Experiences, ASSIST. And, and Marcy Clevens, who's in my book, The Sacred Encounters, she's the first case, right? She was in my doctoral dissertation. She is now integrating... And, and integrated enough that she is now publicly speaking about her experiences. As she spoke, now I've been talking about this for 15 years, but the timing is everything. So when Marcy spoke at this conference, it was such a tremendous uh, success. At the end of it, it was like, yay, aliens, right? <laughs> Everybody was like, and as we sat around the table, a very large table, and these are people, you know, uh, people, luminaries in the field of transfer personal psychology, right? And some people started to share things that they had not known, you know, how to either think about, how to, how to integrate and so we had a profound sharing at one point. Okay, I hate to, you know, I hate to out, I'm not going to say it by name, but one, at one point a woman had to absent herself, go to the bathroom, and throw up. Okay, it was so physiologically impactful to her, so triggering to her to finally have some Corroboration or corroboration yeah. light light about what her experience had been. So we so we were having people start to share maybe for the first time ever some of these experience you know some yeah. elements of this experience and we are right there. So now I'm getting chills. Okay, <laughs> so we're right there. The timing is is now, and so if we have certain if we impact certain individuals right now with this, uh, the work will go, will fall on whatever, you know, I just say fertile ground it needs to. So let's play a little mind game here. I mean, mm -hmm. from our perspective, and you've focused mm -hmm. a lot more on this than I have, you know, we have these accounts and snippets of mm -hmm. information and mm -hmm. stuff remembered during hypnosis and, and all kinds of stuff in it. You know, you can, if you read all the literature, there are all these bits and pieces coming together from various people all over the world. But if you could do a, do a mind shift and put yourself in the perspective of these alien beings, whoever they are, and you completely understood their agenda and their role in mm -hmm. the evolution of uh, our planet and our species and you know, saving mm -hmm. the world or whatever, how would you describe or elaborate 
their perspective and their role? What would you have to say about what they're doing? Well, uh, the, word, the word that uh, I use is uh, a midwifing process, that they are overseeing uh, the transition that the human species is, is in, in process of going through right now, and they are making adjustments as we go along. The way to make adjustments is to impact individual people as opposed to like Lineages. landing on the White House lawn, you know, yeah. and having Although that at some point may be the thing to do, but well, it may be. I I, I don't really know, but you know, there, there's a couple there's a couple important points I want to I want to bring up right here. One is I I think what we experience as a uh, when we talk about these matters and we get like the resistance or the scoffing and these sorts of things. It's like, I think people are experiencing much of what they would experience if they were suddenly uh, to awaken. It's like existential fear crops up. Yeah. You know, uh-huh. And that becomes the resistance. Oh, it's easy to ridicule this stuff because it isn't scientific. Well, you know, yeah, it is. Um, and, and, and we use labels. We use words. And words are important. Words can show us what possibilities there are. But there are certain words that I, I don't use anymore because I, I don't like we the, don't the, say the baggies. And we right? have to use them in order to say what we don't use, but we don't say alien abduction. No. Oh, I, we yeah. stopped using that. It just that. has too much of a creepy yeah. connotation. Right, right. And, yeah. I say close encounters. Mm-hmm. And, and the being, I, don't, I, I, I scarcely even use the word being with regard to cosmic mother. It's like she's a person. You know, she, it humanizes her. She isn't human like she isn't our species. But she has the human phenotype, you know, she has two arms and two legs and a head and eyes and all that. And I think that's a, gene- a generic phenotype throughout the cosmos. It's probably a very efficient way to, to, to get around. At the same time, I can say she's a gray. She, she would be a, a gray that, you know, that uh, people might relate to. I'm working with a, um, someone now who has experiences, uh, who has experienced mantis-type beings, which is a wonderful thing. I am, I am so profoundly, you know, elated to have him in my practice. So, Well, people, a lot of people don't realize that planet Earth was dominated for millions, many millions of years by gigantic insects you know, <laughs> billions of years ago. <laughs> so well, I don't know anyway, how intelligent we're... they were, but uh, there you are. So, you know, so we, you know, so we both have to use some labels and then we trans, we, we change the labels, we transform the labels and we like to think we're beyond the labels, but we have to talk, you know, we, we have to say something. And so, so, you know, so I say gray or, um, you know, uh, you know, there are other kinds of beings. And so one interesting thing is, so here we are at the table at assist sharing. And so immediately someone comes up, well, what about those evil greys? Do we have to protect ourselves from them? And, and this is just so, so right. You talk about non-dualism and, and here we go right into the cosmos with that, with that good versus evil perspective. Um, and so, you know, we're right there as well, Marcy and I, to say, well, that's not how we look at it. You know, that's not how we see this. It's not about uh, good versus evil. It may be on some levels, but we don't see these beings as as that. What about cattle mutilations? What's that about? Yeah, well... Well, you know, I, I, I don't know a whole lot about it, but what the little bit that I've read 
uh, suggests to me that some, but some agent agency, I don't know who, whether it's the the Air Force or some or somebody outside of you know some otherworldly beings. Uh, it appears that they're just testing; they're doing tissue testing to see how contaminated we are. You know? The beings, yeah. yeah, the beings, and so yeah, I could, you know, we don't focus on that. Well, people make a big deal of it, but my goodness, you know, how many cattle do we slaughter every year? You know? <laughs> yeah, this, that, but oh, it just please. sort of makes you, it makes you kind of think that, you know, maybe some of them are a little twisted and others more benign. Um, <laughs> but I, I don't know. But, um, well, see, yes, that's the point is we don't really know that. Yeah. And I don't, I don't go out and teach that. You know, we teach from personal experience and... Uh, from the experience of those that we know best, and that's not our experience. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, and, and what you choose to put your attention on grows stronger in your life. That's even, right. even with subtle uh, beings, I mean, there's right. darker ones, and you, you don't want to go there. You know, you want to keep your attention on And yeah. at the same time, I, I'm, uh, I'm working on a book of spiritual emergency stories, and there are, no doubt about it, people that have been in hell realms, what the Tibetans would call hell realms. I'm not going to say that doesn't exist. It absolutely does, or or um, some forms of attachments or beings that you don't want, you know, in your physical body, in your physical space, sure. um, and there are ways to work with that. So um, the most profound way I know, someone I'll be including his story, when he found himself in a hellish realm, which has a particular odor to it as well. You have to, you have to understand these things are tangible. Um, and what he found was prayer, was actually praying, was actually, you know, reaching out uh, in, to, to the light uh, was the solution, was the remedy. And so that whole, his transformative leap was that. Uh, so, sure. yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, there are things you can do. Um, I, had an, you I had an experience do. one time where I was attacked by something creepy and I started doing yeah. this Sanskrit prayer thing yeah. and uh-huh. it poof, dispelled it. Um, so, I think, you know, some of the listeners might be, they're totally comfortable with the notion that there have been these great spiritual masters like Ramana Maharshi and, mm-hmm. you know, various other spiritual masters. And yet, they might sort of find it a stretch to to think of extraterrestrial beings as being kind of spiritual shepherds or guides and trying to uplift mankind. And yet there are some stories in your book, or at least you're quoting mm-hmm. um, Joy Gilbert's book, mm-hmm. of some of these spiritual masters actually being in cahoots with... Cahoots! <laughs> ...with these extraterrestrials. Yeah. So that's kind of interesting, that, that yeah. they would be the sort of the earthly, human, fleshly agents, uh, and then they have their, their sort of extraterrestrial counterparts, and they're, in, yeah. they're working with, with each other. Very well said. I, you know, I couldn't, yeah, I couldn't say it better myself, is that seems to be the picture, and that's a part of my own research, and that's how we came to meet Joy Gilbert. Uh, I do hope that you'll be able to interview her, and in case you aren't, her book, It's Time to Remember, is a jewel. I know, I read and, it like, uh, around the time it came out, and I totally yes, loved it and then forgot about yes. it. So it's cool to find it in your, referred yes. to in your thing. Yeah, and I try to go through it. Her, her book is The Jewel, and then my book is like kind of pointing out what each facet, you know, each facet in detail psychologically and linking it up. Uh, so her, her life uh, is the embodiment of, 
uh, bringing out the connection with these beings, going from um, the Maharishi Mahashogi to Tibetan Buddhist Gyaltu Rinpoche, who she was a student of, and you know, at the behest of the head of the lineage, the Nyingma lineage, and so, uh, so having that say pedigree, that spiritual pedigree herself, you know, was very important to us and the, the uh, experiences, her experiences and connecting uh, her spiritual work with those uh, traditions and these beings, that was, was critical, mm -hmm. say, that that come out. And so now we're kind of, we are in her tradition, say in her lineage as well, uh, coming out with our own experiences at this point, because it's time. It's just time. You know, I don't, we're not out here trying to convince anybody who doesn't want to be convinced, but just sharing our own experience, hopefully in a grounded enough way, you know, beginning with cancer, beginning with trauma. Now I'm working with people that have some degree of psychosis and seeing that's a spiritually transformative experience that our culture is denying. And, um, and then sharing our enlightenment process. So if people, you know, need to hear this, then they will. And for those that don't, that's okay. That is absolutely, we've got to trust that too. Sure. I think Thomas wants to say something. Oh, just that um, in the last couple of years, uh, I've made a connection with His Eminence, uh, Garson Rinpoche, and I really didn't know anything about him, uh, but, I, but I was led to him. Uh, through, uh, well, through uh, a number that kept resurfacing over and over and over through my life. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's important, I think it's important to, uh, to ground this in science, you know, what, what Janet and I have been experiencing, to ground it in, uh, you know, uh, uh, historical traditions. I mean, I don't, I don't consider myself to be a Buddhist or Hindu or anything, but I, I look at the various... Uh, spiritual practices and I think what you know what works for me so I, I feel a great connection to Garson Rinpoche for example and yet here was this other very strange thing that happened to me when I was four years old I didn't you know I don't have any memory of asking for it to happen it just happened and now it makes sense to me in a much broader perspective this is a universe that's teeming with intelligent life oh you know and they are around us right now and they love us very, very deeply. And I get that there are people who feel they've had negative experiences with that, and I have compassion for them. I'm just telling you that hasn't been my experience. And what I found is, and it was absolutely critical that this happened, uh, the first case in my, in my book, Sacred Encounters, is a woman that had post-traumatic stress from it. And so, that, so, so not to disavow the traumatic aspects of it, in fact, that was where we started. Uh, that's what we started working with. And, and she was, this is Haley, this is Marcy Clevens, who is now teaching. And so you can work through that, whatever, you know, whatever um, um, shock that caused your nervous system and your consciousness, that that can be worked through. That's why we trained in trauma. Okay, trauma therapy. Okay, and so, so not to disavow that, but to 
shelter that to usher it into the next stage of expansion is really, really the, the name of the game. And I also want to bring out when we, yeah, well, uh, along the time that we met Joy, which is about 20 years ago, I was very invested in trying to find out what the other spiritual traditions knew about these beings. And I made a point of, you know, almost harassing Srimas, Bengali saint who now is in Napa, California, of her, you know, asking her Swami to comment on this. I, I would go to uh, Darshan with them and ask them, what do you know about these, these so-called aliens? What do you know about them? What do you know about Vimanas, the UFOs and the Vedic literature? And the answer I got from her Swami was very clear. No one is alien to Sri Ma. No one is alien to Sri Ma. So that's, I think that's about the time when we probably dropped that terminology, mm-hmm. you yeah. see, because, I yeah. mean, we refer uh-huh. to Mexicans as aliens, you know, but if we think of ourselves <laughs> as, a, as one global family, then no one's an alien. So you just have right. to expand it out beyond the earth and then no one's an right. alien. <laughs> right. Uh, I, I think one of the, the primary things that I would like to stress is that there's a continuum of with trauma of dissociation at one end and super connectedness at the other end. Yeah. And there is a, there is a, some medium point in there that uh, can, can be used as a doorway to transition from one to the other. And that this can be done on a collective level. On a collective level. level, Right. It's like what happened to me when I was four years old was my brain got rebooted before it was ready to be rebooted. And now it's being upgraded and rebooted again. And, like, and integrated. This is yeah. the integration process. So beyond the actual experiences and then the the reliving, the recovery of them and making the connections, what it all meant, and then having to live in this higher energetic, that's the integration process. And that's what uh, Marcy Clevin spoke to at the ASSIST conference. And it was electrifying. So... So we're, we're apparently the timing is now. We are ready to hear this. You mentioned science a few minutes ago, Thomas, and um, I'm, I'm, for some reason I'm really fascinated with the potentially enriching, mutually enriching relationship between science and spirituality in terms of science being able to bring a more systematic approach to spirituality so it's not all just faith and conjecture and one one person's subjective experience against another and also in terms of spirituality being able to bring uh, a whole new set of tools to science which it can't mm-hmm. you know to, to enable it to explore the vast majority of, of creation which it is totally unaware of and doesn't even believe in because mm-hmm. it doesn't have the tools to explore and um, and you know the ultimate tool would be the human nervous system itself which is far more sophisticated and subtle in its functioning than any tool that we've been able to build to extend our senses, any material tool. Well, right. And, 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 you know, these beings, these people, well, they come from different, I don't don't want to call it lineages, but they come from from different uh, genetic lines than humans do, Mm -hmm. at least as far as we know. And so their perception of the world around them is probably vastly different than what than, than how we perceive the world mm-hmm. and um, so 
I think I think it's incumbent upon us, we who have been in contact with these beings, or they've been in contact with us, these people, that uh, at some point in our lives we teach about it. You know, we we bring it bring it out in a grounded way that we do connect it with science. I mean, the um, the technologies you have. Well, you have the technologies that help beings travel vast distances and communicate, but you also have the, the technologies of the mind, you know? It's like, how, how can a being uh, communicate with a human and not, not speak verbally to you? You know, is there some, what I call a, a primal language that, uh, you know, you, you don't have to learn like 50 different earth languages in order to communicate with people? Right. Is, is there some it's, primal language that we all can understand? I think there is. And could, would that be useful? Well, I think right? there are levels of the mind which precede meaning. Right. And, right. and if you are right. able to function on those levels of the mind, they, they precede verb. I mean, right. language. They're, they're pre, but they, yeah. they don't precede. I would say they don't precede meaning. So meanings can be conveyed without the use of, of different languages, which are right. More, you know, like, that's it. Yeah. That's it. That's that's more it. Yes. Right. And I think these. Um, I think a, a great deal of knowing or knowledge can be conveyed in a very short period of time. I think we we grossly underestimate uh, the capability of our human brains uh, to take in and download and linearize or you know integrate information. Mm-hmm. I, I think I think we have vastly more capability than we actually. Realized and utilized, yeah. And speaking of like you know shifting of the culture and so on, um, I mean, four or five hundred years ago, it was commonly assumed that the Earth was the center of the universe, you know, the center of the solar system, and so on. And uh, and very few people think that today. Although you can still find websites where people do think that. (laughs) Right. You know, and science is really the tool that has helped us to realize that. So I would like to think that um, through a, a kind of a much more mature science, which incorporated all the kinds of things we're talking about here, exploration and knowledge of subtle realms, we, we could eventually make knowledge of that and familiarity with that and even every common everyday experience of that as common as is now the understanding that the sun is the center of the solar system or many of the other things that we agree upon as a culture which we once thought to be different. Or energy, our energy, the energy. Um, um, well, you're talking about the sun being the center of the solar system, and, and the sun actually uh, is is the source of all forms of energy that we use on this planet. For exact, for example, and I have looked into uh, some of the technologies based upon my work with individuals. It's like uh, you do a what if game, you know? Okay, what if these crafts, say, for example, mm-hmm. are real? Yeah. If so, then how do they do the things that people report? Because they're far outside the envelope of any technology that, that we have currently. Although that being said, I think we are moving very rapidly toward these hyper, call them hyper technologies. Uh, some of which we know about publicly, and a lot I don't think we know about publicly. But uh, I've I've looked into this, and uh, I think uh, there are ways to access, say, solar energy that are very different than anything that's being done right now. And, uh, you know, that, that's an area of interest for me. And so, yeah, Tom has an energy project. I'll just say that. And that's um, designed to bring some of these technologies to manifest them, right? So that our 
so that energy on this planet can can be safely what do you call can be, it can be can be accessed safely limitlessly sure and we don't have to burn anything <laughs> to well, do there this. are guys like greg braden and others you know who are trying mm. to talking about zero point energy and and technologies yeah. like that and there are some who say that many of our current technologies such as the uh, you know the transistor or um you know fiber optics might actually have been reverse engineered from crashed alien spacecraft mm. i don't i don't Stephen See, Greer suggests yeah. that See, we, we don't know about things like that. We try to be very, very grounded in our approach. And when I say Tom has an energy project, I mean an energy project. It's not theory. It's right. actual a practical device. And so we are trying to normalize and, well, manifest what has uh, impacted us and others and bring it, bring it home, bring it home, yeah. you know. Yeah. There's a whole thing about, maybe I'll talk more with Joy Gilbert about this if I end up interviewing her about, you know, implants in the body and genetic mm -hmm. manipulation, you know, taking fetuses from the body and doing this and that. So it seems like there's some kind of a genetic engineering going on on an interspecies level, perhaps. This is well, hu humans are sure trying to do it, aren't we? We're trying yeah. to genetically engineer everything. So it's like, <laughs> Perhaps with, so a, with a cruder, more simplistic understanding of genetics. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Right. right. So, you know, we're probably, uh, you know, I would say that we are some, we have had enough intervention at this point in our genetics that, you know, there's, again, there's nothing I can prove. But, oh, I... I know it wonderful a few a few little stories the, the things that really got my attention when I 20 years ago when I was continuing Ken Ring's research into the effects of this on people who had had near death or UFO encounters and I included a group in my study people that had, had both mm -hmm. people that had had both near death and some kind of UFO or close encounter and one, I'll never forget this. One person uh, during his near-death experience going through the tunnel of light and at each side flanking him were these two beings, what we would call greys, right? They were taking him through the tunnel. And then he had a sense of his own body and he realized he was a grey. Okay, he was himself that kind of being. In human form. Uh, for this lifetime, you're saying? For this human lifetime, right. but in, in on the other side, he again reverted to his more, you know, his, his more resident state of consciousness and being as a gray. Yeah. Okay. And so, so that really started me to think, well, as, as Joy said, uh, they're basically manufacturing bodies so that enlightened beings can have a human experience you know i think that you know if done in a with intent to uh and there are lineages we know that in in ufology there are lineages of families that have this experience and given that you have to think you know who are we you know what has where do we come from some of us come from different places some of us come from the stars Okay, and so, so we listened to this, and then I I was able to write the foreword for a a, a book of 
Australian, an Australian couple. And the woman's experience was basically that she was, as the title of her book uh, was uh, something like human by day, uh, gray by night or alien by night. Right. And so she would have experiences where she would, you know, find herself uh, at someone's bedside and they'd be screaming. This is one childhood experience. And the next day they would relate in school, the other person that they had had, uh, a, you know, a dream where a monster showed up and she was saying, it's me, it's me. Don't you recognize me? Mm. And so she would have, and then she would remember details about the bedroom of the person and realize that she had been in some other form uh, visiting, you know, out of body at night, you know, other people. And then when, when her memories and her experiences became conscious and she realized that her identity was that of, of what we would call an alien being, hmm. that her true identity, her more true identity was that. So, you know, I started paying attention to these stories, to these experiences. Who are we? I have to ask genetically, you know, um, genetically, uh, are there's no question in my mind that we have been uh, impacted and even engineered, okay, by these beings. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting thought that they're genetically engineering bodies that are that could be adequate or appropriate, you know, vehicles for some more highly evolved souls. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's hard to uh, it's hard to disavow that if you read you know, Joy's book or, or even mine, which is partly about her. Yeah, you had some interesting bits in your book about the ancient Vedic society yes. of India. And um, here, here's some little bits about, had regular diplomatic links with a hierarchy of extraterrestrial and higher dimensional beings. The Puranas, which is a Vedic scripture, refer to 400,000 human-like races living on various planets, among which interbreeding regularly occurs. The human species allegedly descending from the devas. Devas is usually translated as gods, but that could easily mean high, more highly evolved beings from elsewhere. Mm -hmm. In Sanskrit, the devas are referred to as vimanikan, meaning travelers in vimanas. Vimanas were aerial cars that the Vedas describe in quite some detail, yes. and there are even yes. pictures of them depicted in various carvings in India. So, anyway, it's, yeah. it's like you know there was a culture, ancient culture, which apparently... Uh, was in regular communion uh, with these other cultures as we are with Italy and, and Germany. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Yes, and I, and I think that we are headed in that direction. We are headed in that direction now. I think know? we are too, which is why I wanted to do this show. I just feel Thank like you. even though people might think I'm a weirdo and, and you know, there's a certain segment of my audience that will just, um, I don't know, we'll get some thumbs down. But... I don't care. I don't, I, I've never really restrained Thank myself you. for fear of being labeled a weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Well, thank you. This is this is very heartening to us. Yeah, it, I think the timing is just is is now. The timing is now for it, and there will be those that will thank you. I can tell you that. And any anybody that thinks it's weird, I. I don't know what their spiritual well, practice. Oh, I know Ken Wilber. I have to say, Ken Wilber wrote a scathing. He wrote a letter, I think, to to the Utney Reader, in which he ridiculed this phenomenon. And I just have to say, 
you don't have to go there. You really do not have to. Yeah. I wish I wish he had actually sat down with some experiencers such as us before he wrote that. But well, you know, history is rife with examples of people who've taken a fixed position, as, oh. you know, on this, that, or the other idea, saying this is the way it is. It can't be anything other than this. And then, they, of course, they've been proven wrong over time. I mean, there were people who said that you know, train travel would be lethal because you can't move forty miles an hour, you know, without dying. <laughs> And, and there, there were people in the 1800s that, that were saying, okay, we've pretty much reached the end of technological advancement. Nothing significant is going to be developed after this. And, oh, yeah. you know, so it's just a mindset. Yeah, and yeah, I really think we have to remain okay. open-minded. Yeah, you know, and, if, and, and, so, and so, you know, we just, yeah. <laughs> so. Well, you know, it's, it's really so clear to me now. We live, we live in a, a self-organizing, self-sustaining universe. Yeah, and the fundamental glue that holds it all together is unconditional love, and and that's where I'm coming from right now. And I, you know, if you, if I had to say I have a goal in my life, is to be able to help people heal emotionally, physically, and uh, for myself to uh, experience that unconditional love as much as I possibly can, and help other people experience it as well. So that's mm -hmm. sort of my bottom line for where I'm at at this point in my life. Yeah. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. Yeah, yeah. yeah the the uh, what did the what did the uh, beings tell Betty Andreas? And those who do not have love have nothing. Love. They basically said love is the answer. Yeah. <laughs> so they yeah, like, came sounds all like the Sermon on the Mount um, yeah. or the Beatles, right? Yeah, right. So, yeah. Um, uh -huh. Just to throw in another point. I mean, we were almost in. This is almost like a good wrap-up moment, but right now. But there's something that I think even takes it a little mm -hmm. bit further, and that uh, something you quoted from Joy's book, where she mm -hmm. maintains that any genuinely enlightened human being is aware of the multitude of layers of creation, including those from whence so-called aliens emerge. I think that pushes the envelope on what enlightenment or awakening really means, because some people say that 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 that, that sort of awareness or perception has nothing to do with enlightenment, and that it. Um, you know, it's a, as I said in the beginning, that it could be a distraction or a hang-up. And, and perhaps it could, you know, if one places undue emphasis on it without kind of getting down to the essence of things and establishing oneself there. But I really think that a full-blown spiritual development is going to include um, a lot more than mere self-realization, if, if you can say that. Absolutely. Right, right, yes. Um, yeah, I, I, I asked Nityananda you know his work, Nityananda? Well, there was, uh, a, there was a Nityananda who was, who was Muktananda's guru, but obviously you didn't ask no. him. No. Um, well, anyway, I, I did spend time. There's uh, a guy in India that there's some scandal around named Nityananda. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. okay. So I tried to communicate with people about this issue, mm -hmm. people that were in guru or enlightened positions and, and try to, you know, elicit some kind of uh, response. And the most, you know, you know, like I said with Sri Ma, that she said, no one is alien to me. Mm -hmm. And so I've been, at one point, I was invested in trying to figure out where the traditions stand with this phenomenon. But at this point, we're 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 absolutely fine with with our own experience, and we're teaching out of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
So, uh, Tom, I think Janet and I have been dominating this conversation a little bit too much. You've had maybe 20% of <laughs> Is there anything more you'd like to say that's important to you that you haven't had a chance to get in? I guess my, my experience of late, uh, I feel like I'm on a, um, an accelerated asymptotic curve right now. Like I got, I got uh, the, my early experience uh, with Cosmic Mother and that gave me, you know, I, I, I jokingly call it a curl brain boost, you know, from the 1950s sci-fi <laughs> forbidden planet, you know, uh, which it was. And now uh, I'm at a whole different phase in, in my process. And, uh, and the, um, the ability to uh, uh, impact people physically, you know, with, with these hands is really totally unexpected to me. Energy for me. And, yeah, the healing. And, uh, but yet it's like, it, to me, it's like uh, a miracle. And, uh, you know, that, I see that as where I'm going in, in my own work, at least part of my own work. And uh, uh, it just, uh, you know, it really convinces me that uh, there is there is hope for the human species, and we have the we have the ability to to do things that are you know life affirming that we just all we have to do is set our minds to it, and you know not live in a place of fear, but just absolutely I've I have experienced that that sense of absolute full on you know flame on unconditional love. And it's 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 a mind blower. It's phenomenal to be in that space, and uh, I you know there are times when I just crave it, and uh, and I want to share that with with people you know however I can do that. So I, I very much appreciate uh, being able to discuss these matters with you on a on a, on a network like this. It's, mm. it's fantastic. I I appreciate the good work you're doing. Thanks. That that kind of brings up a little point, which is that. In contemporary spiritual circles, very often siddhis of any kind are dismissed as irrelevant, as a distraction, as, mm. you know. Um, and yet, you know, these extraterrestrials we've been talking about have all kinds of cities being able to levitate and walk, go through walls and, and, sure. and do amazing things with people. There was even one story where someone reached his hand inside Joy Gilbert's body and pulled something mm -hmm. out. And when I was in the Philippines, I, I went to the, and watched the psychic healers who purport to be doing that. And, and I don't know, it, it seemed to me that it might have been sleight of hand, but I had friends who were doctors who went there for like a couple months every day and just watched as closely as they wanted and ended up being convinced that some of these guys at least are actually doing what it looks like they're doing, reaching in and sure. pulling something out of people. So um, there's all kinds of possibilities out there. And, and again, we have to ask the question, what is what does full human potential look like? and full spiritual potential. Um, is it merely going to be just um, sort of a, a realization of the oneness of things, or will it actually include a blossoming of all kinds of capabilities which we have latent within us? And uh, a phase of, of both, right? It's, you know, I know it's very important to Tom's process that he do this energy work now, mm -hmm. uh, that that's the natural evolution of his uh, energy work with the being, Cosmic Mother. And so it's important now. Everything's on a case-by-case -case basis. Uh, so I, you know, I don't view it as a distraction, but as a necessary step in the process. And so as we integrate and in our work, in our work as healers, right, and we integrate these other experiences, there, there's a time for 
the uh, work that he's doing now, the energy healing, and, and who knows what that will evolve into. But I know it's important for him now. Yeah, I think your point about timing is good because there could be people who don't have a certain level of maturity and, and all who would say, oh, aren't I God's gift to humanity? Look at this ability I have, you know, and it could end up going to their heads. Um, but with a proper degree of spiritual and emotional and personal maturity, then, you know, these things can be appropriate. Absolutely. It's again, you work with the process with what's presenting itself in the best possible way you can. And you, you know, try to stay open to guidance so that the evolution that's natural can occur. You know, Tom's had an active Kundalini process for about 25 20, years, 20, 20 years. years. And so that all that energy, this is uh, another phase of its manifestation. Okay. And so so, you know, we're, we try to stay, we try to stay open and not have a, a judgment. That's a good thing that not have too much of a judgment about this, whether it's about aliens or, or healing or, you know, cities or what is that the judgment itself can shut things down more quickly than anything. So what has your, what's been the nature of your Kundalini process, Thomas? I originally began to experience it, it's got to be 20 years ago, uh, I was doing three-hour meditations every night from about 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. On, on a regular basis. And um, I began to, well, my first experience was I got into a state of, like, I call it the statue mode, where I could sit completely motionless except for breathing for like two or three hours at a time. Mm. This was phenomenal to me because I'm a very jumpy kind of guy. A lot <laughs> uh, and then at some point it began to uh, express itself as, like really intense shaking tremors, you know, whole body tremors. And then it would be like a hurricane comes through, you know, the front half of the hurricane was all the tremors and stuff. Then there'd be this absolute calmness that would happen for 15, 30 minutes, right? Just really beautiful, blissful state. Then the, like the other side of the hurricane would come through and I would experience Kriyas, like, like very distinct patterns. And the Kriyas are of course, spontaneous body postures, you know, and and sometimes motions and my body will do like a Balinese dancer kind of thing. And it's like, wow, what is this? It isn't me. It's just this energy flowing through me. Mm -hmm. And so it's, uh, it's actually become very, very intense in the last uh, two, three months. But, you know, I'm so used to it now. It's like, okay, yeah, <laughs> what's, what's happening tonight, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's a whole other topic that, you know, we can yeah. do a whole interview on. And oh, I'm in touch with a couple of people, one in Australia and another in Spain, who are going through completely incapacitating, horrific mm. Kundalini yeah. experiences mm -hmm. where they are basically bedridden and, yeah. you know, frozen in various postures for hours at a time with uh. volcanic energy that they can't allow, that, that won't go all the way up, you know, that it's stuck. Yeah. And boy, they're really, and if, if world consciousness is rising and this becomes a little bit more epidemic, this is just something that's really going to have to be dealt with in a more systematic oh way by more knowledgeable right. people, because these people can't find doctors who don't regard them as totally crazy and want right. to load them up with Thorazine, you know? Hey, even what I'm experiencing, you know, I, I have asked my uh, my GP and several other doctors just out of a sense of curiosity. They've ne nobody's ever heard of the word Kundalini, so I don't, I don't even go there, <laughs> right? But there's nothing that uh, medical, you know, science, I think, can do anything about this. No. Uh, so I just, I just let it rip, you know? <laughs> 
it's like I'm okay. Yeah. Well, you're you know? fortunate that it's it's processing fairly smoothly. Some people yeah. get into much mm -hmm. more uh, dire situations. Absolutely, I know. Yeah. It can be it can be very very intense. And Janet's had some clients who had really oh, intense. Well, uh, spiritual emergency that's yeah. rife with Kundalini yeah. processes. Yeah, so. yeah. Mm -hmm. But mine just seems to keep on going. I'm okay. That's great. Yeah. Okay, well, we've covered quite a bit, and uh, yeah, you know, oh, wow, it's really fun Thank talking you. to you guys. Thank you for such a uh, broad-minded, heart-based um, communication with us. It's very, very. I mean, it's so rare we have not been able to do this publicly at all mm. in this in this way. So I really thank you for that. Well, I've been around the block, you know, I've been been focusing on this stuff for a long time. And especially since I started doing this show, I've, you know, I talk to a different person every week. And it, mm -hmm. if I if I couldn't accommodate a wide diversity of perspectives and experiences and give people the benefit of the doubt, I wouldn't be able to do this. And right. I, I'm just naturally inclined to accommodate it because I really feel like there's much more in life than meets the eye and you know in my father's house there are many mansions as jesus said there are just so many different mysteries and 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 marvelous things in the universe that we you know generally don't know anything about and so i'm i'm really i really think it's very important to keep an open mind and um not to be gullible but you know i take people with a grain of salt i don't say oh because so and so said it it must be true but i'm really open to the possibility that it is true given <laughs> and, it's, uh, it, it's so important to keep this work grounded you know that's yeah. that's why I, I like to keep it grounded in the science i read a ton of scientific journal articles yeah. you know and to keep it grounded in my meditation you know these are things that people have been doing for thousands of years to help awaken you know so it's like okay so we're introducing another element into this from outside of this planet but it's like why, why can't why not yeah. why I mean, not i think right. steven spielberg and george lucas have prepared us for that and ron howard and the other, yeah. yeah or we've prepared them yeah, right the and it's, it's, it goes back and forth i also i'd like to just thank the the woman joanna jo, johanna who who uh really put this whole um show uh in process when she recommended us so oh, thank sure. you, thank you, dear. Yeah, thank you, Johanna. Yes. Um, and uh, speaking of that, we have a recommendation system for mm -hmm. inviting guests, and uh, we've shut it down for a while because there are just so many re requests, mm -hmm. and Irene was spending a couple hours a day just looking through all these things, but we'll open it up again before too long, and, and mm -hmm. uh, we'll notify people when it's open. So thank you so much for this, and, and, and thank, thank you. you. Yeah, and thanks to those who have been listening or watching. I'll, as always, I'll put up a page on BatGap, you know, about this interview with uh, links to Thomas and, and, and uh, Janet's website and books and any other relevant information. And, yeah. um, you know, you can get in touch with them. Oh, I did want to say Shri M. Oh, yeah. Shri M that you interviewed is a wonderful corollary uh, to this show. Uh, we watched it and we were we knew we were uh, heading in the right direction. So if anybody wants to see his also in conjunction with our interview, it would be lovely. So, yeah, he's a really you. nice guy. I was just down yeah. in Santa Cruz, California, um, doing mm -hmm. conducting a, a, a thing with Francis Bennett and Andy Shanti, which we'll be posting soon. Some woman mm -hmm. came up to me afterwards and said, Triam, I'm going to India to be with Triam. Thank you so much. Oh, <laughs> so it's, it's lovely connecting uh -huh. people like that. Yeah, uh -huh. he, he was a good one. I'd recommend his autobiography, and I'd I'd recommend your books. Um, you know, 
there are three different ones here. I'll link to them, but I, I've really enjoyed reading them. And, oh, um, thank you. If people found this interesting, I think they'll find the books well worth their time. Thank you very much. So let me make a couple of general wrap-up points that I always make that you've been listening or watching to an interview, which is part of an ongoing series. And uh, if you want to check out previous ones, just go to bathgap.com and you can find them all under the past interviews menu, um, categorized in various ways. Uh, if, you, if you sign up for the audio podcast, um, download, you know, you'll download hundreds of episodes and you can listen to them on your iThing um, or Stitcher or whatever. And uh, there's a donate button. We rely on that support Ooh. in order to make this happen. So this is, consumes most of our time here. And some other things, if you just check out the menus and uh, you know, you'll just see some, it's all pretty obvious. Just explore the menus for a few minutes and you'll see what, what we have to offer at batgap.com. So um, thanks for listening or watching. I'm, I have uh, like three or four interviews kind of in process right now, which have already been done. I'm not sure in which order they're going to be released, so I won't announce what the next one is going to be. But there's a bit of a flurry right now because I was just out in California and did a bunch of stuff live. So stay tuned for that, and we'll see you for the next one. Thanks, Thomas and Janet. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Bye.